The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. For a lot of us, the pandemic has been really isolating. My wife and I have been talking about this recently. We're both working from home, and we just don't see that many people. And even though we spend every day together, it's even hard right now for us to feel connected. She's just heard all my stories. The thing is, connection, well, it's everything. If you look at 50 years of social science, across time, anything they're looking at, and they say, what drives human happiness? The the number one answer is always the same. And the answer is meaningful connection to others. That's Kelly Corrigan. She's a writer and host of a new interview show on PBS called Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan. Kelly's work is a master course on human connection. It starts with that one phrase, the one that's become the title of her best-selling book and of her show, Tell Me More. Kelly understands that the engine of human connection is that feeling that we get when we've been heard. And if you want to drive it, you need to relearn how to listen. Not just conversational listening, but listening beyond the words and even beyond the questions. Here's Kelly. An ounce of humility goes a long way. And the humility in listening is, I don't really know what you're worrying about, what you're feeling, what your problem is, off of a headline. Smart, sophisticated listeners do not fall for the headline. Neither do doctors. Like if a, if a patient comes in and says, I've been having headaches all weekend. I read on Mayo Clinic. I have a brain tumor. The doctor's going to tell me more of them. Tell me more. What else? How long have you had these? Et cetera, et cetera. Because they know that like it takes way more information to get to the heart of the issue. And that's true all the time in interpersonal relationships, professional and personal. I, so I have a 18-year-old named Georgia, just finished it first year at Georgetown. And then I have a, a daughter named Claire, who's 17, is just about to start her senior year in high school. If Georgia says, I'm so pissed, Lily's having a party and I can't go. Like, maybe that's it. But maybe there's a thing behind that thing behind that thing. And if I sit back and if I have the humility to say, oh, don't you jump in there with your like greedy, problem-solving thrill-seeking behavior, right? Because it's really fun to solve a problem. But you should let that fun be the other person's. You should not snatch it away from them. Not only because it's greedy, but also because you're probably wrong. You probably don't know enough to say the right thing. And everybody knows that experience. Like I know it with advice givers in my life who shall remain nameless, but like the speedy advice giver who leaves the interaction. And I know they think like, ah, I just totally solved Kelly's problem. Like, God, I I really hooked her up. And I think, meh, I shouldn't have even brought it to them. They don't even, they don't know the half of it. I'm trying to think about the people that I bring my challenges to. And almost always, they're the people who are going to help me solve my problem, not necessarily try to solve my problem for me. And tell me more, the book is structured as 12 sentences that I feel like you have to be able to say to be in deep, permanent relationships. But another one is I know. 
And to me, like I have this really smart woman in my life. Her name's Arielle Trost, and she's a therapist, and she works with uh, girls with eating disorders primarily. And we walk once a week, and so I, I get a lot of I get a lot of wisdom from her secondhand. But a thing she says a lot is, "I know." So if I say, "Oh my God, I'm going to murder them," like. How many years am I going to say, don't put your wet towel on the floor? Like all our towels smell like mold again. I got to go buy eight new towels. Like this is crazy. You're 18 years old. We've been talking about this for like 11 years. She doesn't say, well, you should, or have you tried? She says, I know. And that is so much better for me. That brings me all the way down emotionally so that I can get back into a more logical place. And I'm not so like, spiking with like heat and emotion and righteousness, which is really not doing anybody any good. Um, That is like the internet manifested in your living room. (laughs) Um, You know, Kelly, what you're getting at here are ways to instantly connect with people. So what is it? What does it mean to connect with people and why is it valuable? If you look at 50 years of social science, across time, anything they're studying, anything they're looking at, and they say, what drives human happiness? The the number one answer is always the same. And the answer is meaningful connection to others. So if we know that, which we do, then why aren't we orienting ourselves towards that? Because happiness in and of itself, I don't think is that worthy a pursuit. Only in the sense that it uh, underwrites productivity and contribution and kind of more things that I would put higher up on the value list, is it essential? Like it's a prerequisite. So depressed people are not productive. People who feel happy and connected do big things. They do great things all the time. Uh, They do more things in a lifetime. They solve more problems and maybe they contribute more. Like maybe it's to the actual societal um, benefit that all of us seek happiness as a, as the prerequisite to productivity and contribution. So if, so if you just pin it back, right, you just like keep backwards designing for a better society that takes you to meaningful connection to others. So not only does it like feel good in the immediate, it also makes for like a better world. And I don't really think that's overstating it. And I don't think that's even like a platitude. I don't think it's Pollyanna. Like I literally think if more people feel deeply connected to other people, better things will happen. We will ha- we will see better outcomes across the board. Well, Kelly, and it's the right year to be having that conversation. Where we are right now is in the midst of a an upheaval that is re is causing us to rethink everything that we think that we understand about what it means to be connected. I mean, we're using these digital platforms like Zoom and Blue Jeans and all the rest, but really that that's so top level. There are so many other ways in which we're being asked to rethink what it means to connect with people. So I wonder for you, do you feel more or less connected to the to the people who matter to you and who help you move ideas forward than pre-pandemic? Well, I definitely I definitely feel more connected to my kids. I mean, this is the most time I've, I've spent with my kids since they were babies. Like in a week, I was getting some number of hours fewer than 10 of like real FaceTime, like deliberate time together. 
because they're teenagers. Like, did you want to hang out with your mom when you were a teenager? Like, no way. And so now that like all, so much is being given back to me. So Georgia, our oldest, went to boarding school. She went to St. Paul's in New Hampshire for three years. And look what happened. I got her back. I mean, that's crazy. So in terms of connection with Georgia and Claire, with our kids, I feel a lot of connection. I would submit that you got time with her back, which is different than getting her back. What do you do when you have that time and you have a teenager? It's almost like being an FBI agent who's good at haikus. Like that is that that's the requirement for parenting, parenting a teenager and like squeezing what good there is to squeeze out of any given day. So the FBI agent is just like super tuned in to her rhythms and, and you learn over time, like what expressions and body language are telling you now's a good time to veg out with her and see what you can get going conversationally. And now's a bad time. And, uh, and you just get like a finer and finer nose for timing. And like timing's everything with teenagers. Like they they in a in a day they feel every emotion conceivable about their lives and about you. So like in that one day, they hate you and they love you so much. They're smarter than you, they're dumber than you, they admire you, they despise you. Like it's all happening. And so that's like the FBI agent. And then the haiku pieces when giving advice. You have to really whittle it down because I think you've got about 17 syllables before they tune out. A thing I think about all the time with them is if I really want to say something, if I think something's really worth saying, which uh, less and less is over time, uh, then I really think about it hard for like a couple days before I find the exact words I want to use. And then I'd like, you know, kind of sniff out the moment when there's, when there's like, maximum receptivity. And then I try to like drop my haiku in. Okay. So that's the strategy that takes time. (laughs) That takes time. That takes like a lot of refining. It's like super iterative. Yeah. Yeah. But so the more time you have, like it's like a denominator thing. If I have four hours a week with my kid, that's my denominator. Now in quarantine, I have a hundred hours a week with my kid. So I can, I can find way more opportunities to sit with them to just sort of ride their wave with them, to be to have agendaless time together, and that increases trust, right? Because that does, that means every time you're paying attention to them, it's not because you've got like some big thing you're about to lay down on them. It's just you're just floating by the room, and they look kind of bored, and so you go in and lie down next to them and see if they'll give you anything. Well, you snuck something in there a couple of ideas back, which was this idea that not everything is are saying, in fact, most things aren't. What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? I think in, in almost all interactions, professional and personal, after a certain amount of time has been spent together, the other person knows more or less what you're going to say. So like I, like for instance, I just handed in my manuscript for my fifth book to my editor. I know him really well. He knows me really well. I could almost read it with him in mind and put down on the page the things he's going to put down. I don't know that he's going to surprise me with anything any feedback he gives me when you're in a work relationship with someone like people only have so many points of view. So it's very rare that someone, if you took something to any boss you have at LinkedIn, don't you think it's sort of rare that they would surprise you with their response? Well, I'm thinking through that and I'm thinking, 
okay, then I can see why it's not necessarily the most productive thing. But is it counterproductive? Or is it just neutral? I think it's counterproductive because then I think people start tuning each other out. And this is why it all comes back to tell me more. So let's say you've been working with the same team for three or four years at LinkedIn and everybody's really used to each other and everybody can sort of predict where everybody's going to come out on any given decision or collaborative moment. The thing that could happen where something new could come up, some new solution or some new train of thought is if your boss were tell me mooring you and say, tell me more, Jesse, what else? Go on. And you solved it because way underneath, like the thing behind the thing behind the thing inside you is some other solution, but nobody's, nobody's giving each other the time to discover it because it's all like hustle bustle. Let's go and let's move on to the next agenda item. And that's such a, then you just get a lot of superficial, predictable answers. Because nobody said, well, wait a minute. If we listen more and talk less, we may have room to start to formulate the important questions that will actually move the things we care about forward. Yes, and it'll be exciting. There'll be discovery, real discovery. Like, you know that feeling when you're saying something you've never said before? Like that, sometimes I say to Edward, my husband, like, tell me something you've never said before. Like, I don't want to just be another person that you share your ideas about Draymond Green and whether the Warriors could win next year or the singularity is near or Black Swan or Sapiens or whatever book you're reading. Like, tell me something you wouldn't be able to tell anyone else. That's who I want to be to you. What what does your husband often reply with when this comes up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't tell you guys. It's too private. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Kelly shares a provocative take on what it means to bring our full selves to our jobs. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. My guest today is Kelly Corrigan. You know, people talk to Kelly. She's just got that quality about her. I found myself talking to her, telling her all kinds of things. And so I asked her why she thinks that is. I mean, I definitely take friendship seriously. 
I definitely feel like it's something I want to be super good at. And that if at the, if at the end of my life, I, I think you were such a good friend to that, that handful of people, that would be very satisfying. So, I mean, one thing I could say is that I think it's really important to be good at that and um, super satisfying. Like it's a part of some of the most satisfying hours of my life, I'm sure, are in these deeper conversations. And, you know, like this shit really hits the fan now. Like I got cancer in my 30s. My friend's husband left after a three-year horrific affair that involved like 25,000 lies. Oh, You know, my other friend's husband's unemployed. My other friend's husband has like had to leave because he had an addiction that, I mean, you know, real stuff happens and it's stunning. It's, it's so shocking what, what people uh, are carrying and what they can absorb. Like the shocks that people can absorb are really like more than I would have thought. Well, you know, it's funny. I think about the things that I've seen happen to me and to people I know that are things that I put in the category of, oh, you can never survive that. Yes. And yet people survive. And for me, you know, while I was going through something a bit ago, uh, a woman, a woman I know said, kind of feel like the first half of your life is learning how to love and feel loved. And just when you kind of figure that out, you're somewhere in the middle, then the loss sets in. And the whole second half of your life is about learning how to love through the loss. That is the challenge. And that's so interesting that she chose that phrasing. I, my father died five years ago and I really loved him. And uh, in his eulogy, the thing I said is like, uh, I'll be okay. Like I know, I know how to love people and I know how to let people love me back. Hmm. And and that's how you that's how you survive the loss is that you really do it. You know, I think it's fair to say that many people, maybe even most people will have their thing and they'll live through it. And, and, and it's not even it's not evenly dispersed. But if you look around the conference room on any given day when you're at your job or these days, the virtual conference room, and you hold in your mind the fact that everybody's sitting at that table has a thing. It changes the way you do your work. It's-, it's so interesting that you say that because a thing that's happened because of the coronavirus is that people are in their houses and their kid will walk by, or their dog will walk by, or the cat will cross over in front of the screen. And, or worse, you know, like that door will be ringing or somebody will be screaming or whatever. <laughs> and I, I think that is to the positive. I think that is to the the good because I don't think compartmentalizing and like the, all the pretending that goes into work is necessarily to the greater benefit or to the personal individual benefit. So any reminder that you're doing this call in the context of a personal life to me has to be a net positive. It has to make us more understanding, more compassionate, more connected. Like enough of this bullshit about like who's nailing it. Like everybody's kind of nailing it and everybody's kind of suffering too. Like it's not either or. I don't believe in the like everybody's in pain thing. I sort of believe like everybody's in pain sometimes and everybody's like 
kicking ass another time. Like even within like the same day, you could be killing it and kind of dying under the weight of your own life. Well, you know, in the 20th century, uh, office culture in particular was a very binary thing that was very separate from home culture. And the people who could best compartmentalize those things were rewarded for that. That was where the reward came from. And here we are in the 21st century, and already we were on the way to a reorganization around that. Many of the people who have been the most powerful speakers on Hello Monday so far are people talking about vulnerability and leadership, men and women talking about how to bring their full selves to work. But then the pandemic happened, and that feels like the final reordering. And I wonder if in the future, the people who will be rewarded in a work context are the people who actually confuse both truly and be their full mm. self. I don't know what's going to happen to work. This generation has this incredibly high expectation for like deep satisfaction and meaning from work, which I share. Like I, I don't, um, you know, I, I'm not a bricklayer for business. Like I do the thing that means the most to me and I'm super, super lucky to to have found some footing in that world. I, I just wonder if there might be like a pendulum swing where we go with this generation, the millennials who want meaning and, and um, kind of these deeper, higher order uh, self-actualization type stuff in their work and that they really insist on it. And then all this mission talk, et cetera, et cetera, to like in a recession or a depression, God help us, um, people will have much lower standards for work. They don't, they won't care anymore at all. They just want health insurance and they just want a regular paycheck and they want some security and regularity. And so all those requirements will move somewhere else. And then you do wonder about when something is so enormous like this and so hard to get your head around, if there will be a return to ancient wisdoms or religions or something that would once again separate your very practical set of needs, food, shelter, security, health insurance, and your highest order um, self-actualization needs that would be met in group therapy or church or um, yoga. And will that the existence of that take some of the pressure off of work to provide, to scratch those itches? Like, I have no idea, but it is kind of curious to me that for sure our standards are going to drop. Yeah. Or maybe they're going to change. Maybe drop isn't even the right word. I mean, yes. because because I, I also talk to people who are like, look, now that I've spent so much time with my family, I'm not willing to have a career that lets me not have that. And I mean, we might think that that means that I absolutely have to have some, you know, well-paying tech job where I work in front of a computer, but maybe that's not what it means at all. Maybe it means like I'm going to go be a factory worker from, you know, nine to four so that I can carve out that other time and just be present. Yes. And I, and don't you think that the patterns around commuting and work travel are just going to, I hope, I really hope they change. That was Kelly Corrigan. We spoke in May when most of us in the U.S. were still on lockdown and a lot has changed since then. So I called Kelly back to see what was new. She'd started traveling again. In fact, she'd just been to Alabama to record the debut episode of her new PBS series, Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan. Her first guest for the show is Brian Stevenson. He's the lawyer who founded the Equal Justice Initiative. He defends inmates who've been sentenced to death. He's an incredible storyteller. 
and these people like live in his heart like he's bringing you into a cell the way he tells the story I mean it's a really a a testament to the power of great narrative that he's able to make it all come alive in your imagination as he's talking and if it does if you dare to think about what it would be like to live in a five by seven cell for 30 years for something you didn't do like he is dealing with these people who should be furious who should be starting a war and they're the least furious people in the entire equation they're just want to matter they just want to be seen they just want to vote well kelly is this something we're going to see more of is this going to be a regular show they gave us three one-hour specials so the first episode is today october 5th then a week from today is james corden october 12th who's so fun and surprising (sighs) and different we also both got choked up He, he told a story about his dad that just killed me as a person who really loved her dad and misses him. And then the next week, the next Monday, the 19th of October is Jennifer Garner. Wow. And she also got choked up telling the story about being on set with Matthew McConaughey and trying to like pump in the bathroom so that she could, the sort of filming schedule could stay, that they could stay on this really tight schedule. And she told incredible stories about what it is like to be chased by the paparazzi for 15 years. Zooming out for a second, three hour-long episodes, three very different people. Um, But you're doing the asking. You're doing the interviewing. So where are the common threads? What what do these three people have in common that tell us something about our humanity? It's interesting that in each case, we talked about race, we talked about the pandemic, uh, and we talked about sort of the political climate. And in the, in, in the case of Jen and James, we talked a lot about parenting through this moment, through this prolonged moment, and trying to model what it is to be a lifetime learner and to try to model intellectual humility, which is to say, I don't know, uh, and I don't expect to know anytime soon, and I think to know is to commit to um, pretty serious, regular engagement with books, documentaries, and real life people who have real life experiences to tell us about. So that that was super relatable to me, like just how hard it is to do the work and then model the work for your kids, while also in some ways protecting their childhood. We are we are set on a course by our childhoods and our parents, for better or worse. And that's just a very interesting thing to be face-to-face with when you're actively raising children. Kelly, thank you. We cannot wait to watch. I know. I'll see you there. And listen, if you love it, if you love it, will you please write PBS? Because the only way I'm going to get to keep doing it is if they uh, hear back from everybody that they really loved it and valued it and thought that it was helpful in people's daily lives. I'm already composing my letter. Thank you very much. Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan debuts October 5th on PBS. And this idea of how to listen well, it's really been on my mind, as you can probably tell. When I try to listen, I just miss a lot. I can't tell you how many times I'll be editing an episode and I'll hear something a guest said that I missed the first time around. So this week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about it, what it means to listen well, 
How do we do it? When can it help us? I hope you'll join me and our producer, Sarah Storm, during our weekly Wednesday coffee break. We'll go live as usual at 3 p.m. Eastern from my LinkedIn profile. To join us, follow me on LinkedIn or email us for the link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. I know I ask every week, but here's the thing. It really matters. It helps people find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Faroe listen well to every episode. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. When I read your book the first time, I didn't have my son yet. He came out of us six months after that. And it was a different thing to read it a second time. I don't Mm. know if it opened some sort of center of compassion within me where everything felt so much closer to the surface. And I was like, oh, yeah, that that's what I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a raw experience to have children and to be at that level of risk at all times. There's so much pain and anxiety and fear, and it builds up towards the end of every single week. And then Sunday night, you put your head on the pillow and you think we got through another weekend.